Dave from New Jersey, it's the SNL Nerds, the show where two comics from New Jersey nerd out about Saturday Night Live. I'm your co-host, John Trumbull. And I'm your co-host, Darren Patterson. And uh, we're doing a special bonus episode this week. Uh, on our last regular episode, we talked about For Mad Men Only, the, uh, the documentary about uh, Del Close. And we have a couple special guests uh, this week. We've got uh, Mr. John Ostrander, who's featured in the movie and was a uh, friend and uh, collaborator with Del Close. And we also have uh, Mr. Bob Greenberger, who is a writer and a former editor at DC Comics. And he also worked with John on the Suicide Squad. So we're going to talk about uh, both of those. So welcome, John and Bob. Thanks for thank you, uh, thank you. coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, um, I think I think a good place to start is uh, uh, since we are an SNL uh, podcast. Just quickly, like, what's your SNL origin story? Did you ever watch the show, and if so, in what era? So <laughs> I, I am so old. I saw the very first show. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Oh, wow. Way back when, uh, and an early one that I remember very well. Eric Idle uh, was the host, and Kate Bush was the musical guest, and that's when I first oh wow uh, got into Kate Bush. You know, like I was just fascinated by what I saw. So uh, got to go back and back and back and back. And and Bob, you were telling us before we started recording, you were a fan of the original cast era as well, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, back in the late 70s, there was uh, ABC's, what was it, Friday, Friday nights, whatever they were calling it. Then there was Saturday Night mm-hmm. Live. Both were entertaining. And I was with the original cast uh, and then fell out of the habit because, you know, I just wasn't around on Saturday nights at 1130. Mm-hmm. Or if I was around, I was asleep. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That life, happens as you get old. Life can get in the way. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, there have been a few episodes of SNL on this podcast where I've fallen asleep before the end of the episode. So I'm very glad for DVRs and YouTube. <laughs> so, yeah, um, absolutely. John, uh, you were personally acquainted with Del Close. You two went way back. Mm. You met in the Chicago theater scene. Is that right? Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, I knew of Del uh, before I met him, mm-hmm. uh, and his reputation was a little scary. Uh, at the time as well. But uh, we met while doing um, a Christmas Carol at um, at the Goodman Theater. Dell was cast as the ghost of Christmas present. And uh, under his robes, he, uh, uh, he wore a pentagram because as far as he was concerned, he wasn't a Christian uh, uh, deity. Uh, Dell himself was pagan, so he decided he was playing a pagan. Mm-hmm. Entity. So... Um, but yeah, I met him, and he was, uh, uh, and what I had heard was a little scary, for particularly for someone who was as square as I was. And um, but we got along famously. I found out uh, we wound up in the same dressing room together, and uh, Dell was, among other things, a huge science fiction and comic book geek. And uh, he, what he liked about comic books was, at the time, he he said that uh, comic books was an American, was an original American art form in which the first great masterpiece had yet to be created. So he wanted to be part of that. 
Oh, wow. So, okay. So, so you, what, when did you guys meet? That was sometime in the early eighties, I'm thinking. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, uh, God, uh, Goodman has been doing Christmas Carol now forever, but that year it was, it was, uh, the first time they were doing it. And there was some concern about whether or not it was going to go over with the audiences. Well, it did like gangbusters. In fact, um, one of the large reasons uh, was uh, my friend Bill Norris, uh, who is playing Scrooge uh, as well. And Dell certainly was part of, of that cast. Bill's the guy that I was telling about who just died recently. Mm. Oh. My condolences. So, boom. Uh, but, uh, and, uh, uh, so and, and Dell invited me to take some improv classes. I said, oh, I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't have any uh, real desire to go on Saturday Night Live, you know, and that's what seems to be happening. You know, if they go from uh, Second City to Saturday Night Live and Dell says, no, you are exactly what I want. I don't want people who want to be famous. I want people who want to work um, in this. So I said, well, okay. And I did it and it was tremendously liberating to my writing at the time as well. Mm. So. Uh, and so at the time, that, were you uh, still primarily a, a playwright, or you you were breaking into comics at this time? Um, I was breaking into comics. I was still, pri- I still thought of myself primarily as uh, some a man of the theater, uh, acting, directing, mm-hmm. writing, and teaching. And um, but it was during uh, um, I think the third or fourth year of um, of, of Christmas Carol. I was I was casting a bunch. Of, I I was part of the mob, and I which involved frequent uh, uh, cl- changes of clothes and walking across the stage, and trying to be in the moment as as actors say. And one time when I was doing that, my mind went, you know, you could be making a lot more money at your typewriter writing comics right now, and that's around the time that I said I'm retiring from acting. And from theater, and I just became full time uh, writing in comics. Mm. Okay, wow. and that, and like ar- around the same time that you were starting up uh, Wasteland with Del Close, you were also starting up The Suicide Squad with your editor Robert Greenberger, who is our other guest Who's, today, who had a lot of uh, a lot to do with my coming to DC. Indeed. So, so, Bob, how did that come about? Um, Mike Gold slipped me a hundred bucks and said, "Get him out of here." <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. Um, I really enjoyed John's work uh, on Grimjack and Star Slayer, and uh, was keeping an eye on his stuff. And then got the pleasure to meet him at a conventions. And then it was, I guess it was 1985 at the Atlanta Fantasy Fair. John and I had the first comics and DC Comics table adjacent to one another. And we just started talking and we had meals and struck up a really good friendship and decided we wanted to work together. Mm -hmm. And it sort of grew from there. Nice, nice. So, I mean, John, from what I understand, Suicide Squad was the first thing you pitched at DC, or did uh, that miniseries Legends come first? Uh, almost simultaneously, but I didn't pitch it. Uh, uh, what I was after was Challengers of the Unknown, 
which is one of the great oh, titles yeah. in comics and still mm-hmm. is. Mm. I mean, challengers of the unknown. You know, like, uh, and Bob <laughs> says, no, you can't have it. Uh, another guy's got dibs on it. And then he tells yeah, me. Yeah, this hey, uh, Jeff Loeb fella. Yeah. 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 So I wasn't going to get be able to get anywhere near it. So he says, look, we got this other title that uh, ran for five issues in a anthology book in the 50s. Nobody ha- is after that. And you can do whatever you want with it. I said, okay, what is it? And he says, Suicide Squad. And I said, what a stupid name. Who in their right minds would belong <laughs> to something that calls itself Suicide Squad? And he sent me out to think about it. And then I did. And I went, well, maybe people who don't have a choice. And who, who doesn't have a choice? Convicts. Convicts. Are, oh, oh, prisoners. Hey, we are, now we're on to something. Because I love playing with the bad guys. And DC had such a wonderful right. uh, uh, array of, of baddies. Uh, and I always loved when they would do a supervillain book, like uh, Secret Society of Supervillains, or, or even the Joker book. And Joker mm-hmm. had his own book for a little while. And so um, I pitched that to Bob. And uh, uh, it's sort of like Mission Impossible and uh, and the Dirty Dozen crossed with with supervillains. And lo and behold, they they said, hey, that might work. You know, the, the and, other thing about this is that it wasn't just the supervillains. Uh, I mm-hmm. wanted some low-hanging fruit from the heroic side. Mm-hmm. People who might be in need of redemption or characters that were likely not to be used by anybody else that we could play with. Mm-hmm. So right. it really was a mix, which was which was unique for comics at the time. Yeah, you really yeah, did I, have uh, the heroic characters like, like Bronze Tiger or Nightshade or, or Nemesis mixed in with unrepentant mm-hmm. criminals like Captain Boomerang and Deadshot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was actually Bob who pushed that and, and he was right. And uh, uh, the mixture, I think really helped uh, bring the team together. And then what I did also was uh, I created a specific character to be um, the top kick on it. You know, the, uh, the person who was running the whole show mm-hmm. And that was Amanda Waller. Right. Mm. Right. Who, uh, I understand Amanda Waller was uh, partially based on Nell Carter, at least visually, right? Uh, a little bit, but also on some other people that I knew, uh, some, uh, some black women that I knew. And uh, I mm-hmm. specific, I wanted somebody who had no superpowers themselves, uh, who was black, who was female, who was middle-aged, and of a certain heft. Because to my mind, that would convey the idea of uh, of a certain power to her. You know, like I mean, uh, Amanda's superpower is her will, her unbreakable, unshakable will. Bob, I think the best cover we ever did that that showed that was when uh, it's just Amanda and Batman, and she's backing him up against the wall with with one finger in his. Yeah. Back. Yes. No question. I mean, that yeah, defined her. that was a Jerry Bingham cover. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Bingham did great covers. Yeah. Yeah, and that yeah. that was a standout issue in the run where, uh, like, Batman, he figures out that the government is sending these supervillains on, on these suicide missions. He doesn't like this, so he sneaks into the prison to put a stop to it. And, and Amanda Waller 
basically gets Batman to back down. Yeah. Yeah. Because she says, that you is know, crazy. if you come at me, I'm going to find out who you are and tell everybody, you know, and, uh, right, and she right. made it convincing. She made it convincing. So, uh, something that Bob said yeah. also that I, that I want to, uh, emphasize and, uh, build on a little bit is the idea of that. These would be characters that we had control over. You know, that was, that was one of the big things, yes. you know, uh, uh, conditions of the book. We didn't want big name supervillains who were going to, you know, that were going to have to have to answer, say like to the Superman team or to the Batman team. We wanted them and they would be ours and we could do whatever we wanted with them and that we were going to kill some of them. And that was understood from, from the uh, get go. And, uh, and that's what we did. And they let us do it. Yeah, I mean, you know, we had to kill a character in the very first issue to prove our point, just like we had to have the arm bracelet blow somebody's hand off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we, we, needed, we needed to maim people and say, we're serious. So when a character like the Penguin guest stars, people go, wait a second, are they going to do something? Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, uh, yeah. Created- I mean, that, that was... Go ahead, John. It created a sense of tension every time we had somebody. You never knew who we were going to kill, when or how. By the way, I mentioned uh, uh, the mm-hmm. first person that blew the arm off of was um, uh, Slipknot. And uh, when mm-hmm. I saw them rolling that out in the first Suicide Squad movie, I, I almost I almost burst yes. out laughing because I knew exactly what was going to they took it exactly. Right. I mean, they did update it a little bit where it was a an explosive thing implanted in the skull. And yeah. uh, actually, you had a little experience of that in the second movie, John. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. It was my moment. <laughs> That's my starring moment. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. John but- actually has a cameo in, in the first five minutes of the second Suicide Squad movie where you implant the charge into uh it was a uh, michael rooker's head right yeah yeah uh uh james gunn offered it to me by the way i can't say enough good things about james gunn uh they mm-hmm. they brought me down there uh and it wasn't until we were actually filming it that he saw that i was capable of doing some stuff so he threw some lines for at me to see if i could do them on screen and i originally mm-hmm. had two lines and they kept the uh the best one for the actual movie a good dog. You know, right. <laughs> and, and I loved how you said that too, because you just said it with such viciousness. Um, yeah. And yeah. Well, were you a member I, I, of, of the Screen Actors Guild before? Nope. Nope. Uh, I don't think I've had quite enough screen time to qualify yet, but I'll certainly keep that to mind. I see. Okay. I have an opportunity. Um, but uh, I had time before I was brought in. And and so I, I looked over the pages in which they had, and I and I saw the costume. So I created. So I did what I do as both as a writer and as an actor. I created a, a little character for him, and, uh, mm-hmm. and that's what came out. That's great. That's great. I, I got. I I knew you were going to have a cameo in the movie, but I didn't know it would be like at the very beginning of the movie. So I was very thrilled to see you on screen, and it's. And it's it's also so rare 
when a creator has a cameo in a movie like that, that they get mm-hmm. a, a speaking part. So yeah. I was glad that one of your lines made it on screen. Yeah, that yeah. beats uh, Starlin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's more. No, wait. Yeah, Jim Starlin did have a line. He did oh, have did a line. did he? I forgot. Yeah, he had a, he had one line in Captain America's focus group and then Endgame, uh, Encounter Group. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah he, right. he, he asked something, I think. Yeah. I can't remember. But still, I mean, you know, John, John is blessed because he was invited to the set for the first film, mm-hmm. had a building named after him in the first film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It gets to be in the second film. I think it is such respect on the part of the filmmakers uh, for the source material. Uh, and I just was beaming each time I watched these movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Uh, I mean, uh, they knew that uh, James Gunn, especially, uh, uh, knew mm-hmm. the source material backwards and forwards. He got it. He, uh, I mean, one of the things they talked yeah. to me about uh, how, uh, how he really thought it was the Dirty Dozen, uh, and that's what he wanted to do. The Dirty Dozen with super villains. I said, "Yeah, okay, you got it." Uh, and <laughs> I, I just enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed being with him. I enjoyed the experience. I enjoyed watching the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really good. I was also really impressed. I saw when uh, James Gunn and the cast were making the rounds on the late night talk shows. I think it was on. It's either on Jimmy Kimmel or, or Seth Meyers. He actually mentioned you by name, which yeah. I was very heartened to see. I mean, you hardly yeah. ever see a director mention the comics at all, but he he not only mentioned the comics, he mentioned you. I think he mentioned Kim Yale as well, who is your, yeah. your late wife and your co-writer. Yeah. For the well, all, also on opening book. night, yeah, you know, uh, at the premiere in Hollywood, um, uh, James Gunn got up and introduced all the people from, you know, uh, uh, doing uh, uh, who created the movie and the actors and all that, and the, he saved me for last. I was the last one oh, mentioned. Nice, on it. and and he and he said that uh, without him we aren't here. So uh, uh, yeah, I, I had to get up and wave to the audience a little bit. So, uh, but that was amazing. That oh, was how sweet, amazing. That's wonderful. That's yeah. that's. I mean, that's great to hear. James Gunn really seems like good people. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. So, you, you, I mean, how, how long did you get to spend on set? Just a day or two or? Just a day or two. I uh, They brought me in the day before uh, and I mm-hmm. uh, I got measured for my, for my uh, 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 costume. And, uh, and then they brought mm-hmm. me over uh, uh, to the, to the sound stage. And uh, James Gunn and uh, and his production staff, and the, uh, as I come up to them, they all go start bowing, going, "We're not worthy. We're not worthy." <laughs> <laughs> I told him, "Stop! Oh, stop!" That's stop, great. Stop. Another another SNL reference. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. So uh, uh, that's and, really and cool. how many of the how many of the actors did you get to meet? Um, I met. Oh, nice. um, well, obviously Rooker. Um, Mm-hmm. And uh, there were a couple of others. Uh, oh God, his name went right out of my head. The guy who plays Polka Dot Man. Oh, uh, uh, David uh, Dalz. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think he's a comic book nerd too, and so he came over and uh, he uh, is. So that yes. was really nice. So uh, I think I even signed some comic books for him. So. Uh, oh, that's great. 
That's great. yeah, and then of course I met others yeah, a- uh, uh, at the uh, at the at the party after the opening. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I I was particularly surprised in the second film they killed off a couple of the mainstays from the comic book version. Yeah, uh, and that was that was shocking to me as as a comic book fan. Well, yeah, it's the same general principle. You know, if it, the message sends, if we're willing to kill them off, who who else are we going to kill off? And uh, uh, and that keeps that constant tension in the film. You don't mm-hmm. uh, it, usually in stories like these, in comics like this, in movies like this, you go, well, they're not going to kill off so and so because you know they're big name, they're big deal. I mean. Captain Boomerang, you're like, no, they're not going to kill him off. Boom, they killed him off. Early on, too. You're like, yeah. uh, uh, you, better, you better be prepared <laughs> to deal with it. People were generally shocked about that. I yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was. Well, so, I mean, yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. I mean, if if you have not read the Suicide Squad comic, Captain Boomerang is in it, uh, like, pretty much all the way through to the end. You did, uh, what, like... Was it 60 issues at DC in the initial run? 66. 66, thank you. And, uh, yeah, and Captain Boomerang and and Deadshot, who uh, Will Smith played in the first film, were like the two of the mainstays and and the the team, along with Amanda Waller, of course. Yeah. So. Now, one thing I want to add, um, Mm. which made me very happy for the second film, and... It's the one and only exchange I had on Twitter with James Gunn. Um, but one of the things the original Suicide Squad had that none of the subsequent series have had until recently was a very strong supporting cast of the people who ran Bell Reeve. Mm-hmm. And when I heard that they actually had Johnny Economus, yeah. one, of, one of the Bell Reeve people in the second film, it was like, Wow. Yeah. That that's a deep dive. And then uh Gunn, you know, was explaining how he had written the part just for the actor, and it was like, wow. Yeah. 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 And, and now he's in the vigil uh, he's in the uh, Peacemaker <laughs> series as well. Yeah. Yeah. And and beautifully cast, by the way. I mean, yeah. he's <laughs> uh he was um oh wait, I'm blanking on the name of that actor now. Um uh, Steve Agee. Thank you, Steve Agee. I was like, I know this who this actor is and everything. Um, but yeah. yeah, he works with um, he works with James Gunn a lot. I know he was also in uh, the Guardians at a Galaxy movie as well. That's right. Yeah, he is. He he was like on one of the other Guardian teams, I think. Yeah, and uh, he was in the uh, motion capture suit of uh, for King Shark. In, oh, uh, that's right. Swiss yes, Park. yeah. So he was he was on the set a lot. So, yeah. but. Uh, you're you're right. That that is a deep dive, and and like Flo was in the yeah. was in the the ground crew team. Yeah, she wasn't named as clearly, but yeah, I mean mm-hmm. that Flo Corley and Johnny Economos, mm-hmm. and then Flo delivering that coup de gras to, to Amanda in the, towards the end. It was like wow. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, so you you could tell that James Gunn had done his homework. Oh yeah. I mean, well, he didn't. Yeah, I mean, he I didn't mean, have to disappear, whole... but. There's a whole story of how, when they brought him over, they uh, uh, Warner Brothers offered to uh, him anything he wanted. Did he want to do the next Superman film? And he said, "No, I mm-hmm. actually I want to do Suicide Squad." So uh, that's that's the series he wanted to do. So, 
Wow. That, that is something else. And I mean, I, I was, I was mixed at best on the first Suicide Squad movie, but man, I, I loved the second. I thought it did. Mm-hmm. I thought it hit it out of the park. I was very impressed mm-hmm. with that film. And when they did a, uh, like a few months ago, they did like a Twitter watch along thing. I think right before it was leaving uh, HBO Max, mm-hmm. um, I, I was doing that, and and uh, uh, James Gunn answered a couple of my tweets, <laughs> so that was nice. Fun. Hey, yeah. Nice. So, um, so at, like at around the same time you were doing Suicide Squad, you're also getting this comic book wasteland off the ground. That's that is mentioned, and panels of it are depicted in the For Mad Men Only. Uh, documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, what mm-hmm. what was that process like, John? Well, now that started actually from the editor Mike Gold, another old friend of mine, okay. and and the other person mm-hmm. also responsible for bringing me over to DC along with Bob. And uh, right, uh, he wanted me to do um, the follow up to Crisis on Infinite Earth, which we called Legends, and that's actually where the Suicide mm-hmm. Squad debuted. Um, so, uh, he had another idea and usually I would approach Mike with ideas, but Mike approached me with this idea. Uh, uh, he wanted, he liked a lot of the old horror comics, particularly DC, uh, uh, EC and the others, but, uh, but he wanted to do mm-hmm. it slightly different, you know, a little bit darker, you know, like, a a little bit more psychological horror rather than monster of the week horror. So, um, well, I fell in with it mainly because Mike, usually when Mike had an idea, uh, if I said yes, I'd be into something interesting. So, uh, and the other idea was that we'd bring along Del Close. Now, Del and I had already been doing Munden Spar stories in the back of Grimjack. So, uh, and Del, mm-hmm. of course, being a big science fiction and horror fan, yeah, the, yeah, this appealed to him a lot. So, uh, uh, hmm. and then the idea would be rotating artists, which sometimes we played with, or he, Mike played with, because sometimes one artist wasn't quite available for for the given slot and mm-hmm. bring in someone else very interesting for it. So, um, so the before artists, uh, one guy would do the cover and three in the interior, and then the guy on the cover would go into the in interior in the next uh uh issue and somebody and and one right. of the three who'd been drawing inside would do the next cover. And uh, Right, so it was one, always rotating. Yeah. And and at one point Mike described it uh as a black hole humor comic. It was that the humor was so dark that laughs couldn't escape from it. Sometimes, um, but yeah, and our 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 other idea was to take you. Uh, uh, horror stories often take you into a place of horror and then bring you back out again. We didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. We wanted to take you and put you in the middle of it and leave you there to find your own way out. And um, uh, and that's well, frequently what we did. Sometimes, yeah, a lot of humor, but a lot of them were you know no no we were pretty straightforward about it. And and it was also intermixed in this book were true stories or semi true stories from Del Close's life that you basically adapted into comics. Yeah, yeah. It's the only place where Del did tell any version uh, of his autobiography in print. You know, like 
He's he often mm-hmm. told uh, he told stories on himself. Other people told stories about Del. Um, Del Close stories are infamous, infamous, uh, mm-hmm. hysterical, and I'm a bit crazed. And don't get me started telling the ones that we didn't do because I could do this all night. But um, yeah, uh, well, uh, Del. There, Del would, uh, there Del, is one Del Close story I'm going to prompt you on. Because I, I remember this because I asked you, I, I, I first met you, uh, I don't remember how many years ago this was, but it was, I was having lunch. Uh, it was you, me and our friends, uh, Kevin and Tamara. Mm-hmm. And I think within the first 10 minutes of meeting you, I, I brought up Del Close because I'm a comedy nerd. And you mm-hmm. told me this wonderful story of where Del thought he was having visions in his apartment. Oh, you remember yeah. the story I mean? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. His uh, his then writing partner John Cale, uh, they had taken after having been out in California. That they, they came back to Chicago. They were being writing partners, and they went into a three flat. Um, John had the apartment below, and Dell was directly above him. These were furnished flats, you know, like uh, and uh, yeah, low rent, low rent. So uh, one day. Kale is sitting in his apartment, um, and he can hear Dell wandering around uh, uh, in his apartment up above. And all of a sudden, he hears this <laughs> boom, and he go, and then he hears nothing. He goes, "What the hell happened to Dell?" So he's getting ready to get up and go, but then he hears Dell get to his feet, and Dell starts walking around, and he goes, "Okay, he's okay." So he walks around some more, and uh, then again he hears, ah, bam, you know, like, and silence. And so this now he's starting to get worried, but Dell gets up again. So a third time this happens, ah, boom, and John Kale at that point says, "Okay, I'm going upstairs. I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to find out." And he heads for his door in time to hear Dell get up, run to his door run down the stairs, and pound on John's door. John opens the, uh, that door, and Dell is there, no shirt on, no no shoes on or socks, and reeking of weed. And uh, Dell's going, John, John, you got to come upstairs. I've just found a way to knock myself out with my own thoughts. And... Uh, <laughs> And John says, okay. So they go upstairs and they get settled. And John goes, er, and Del and goes, now I have to walk a certain pattern. And so he starts walking. And sure enough, he gets to a spot and, and he goes, boom, and falls out. And he's knocked out, just knocked out, alive but knocked out. So uh, John goes over to check on him and he sees a burn mark on the bottom of one of Dell's feet. Now, then he starts checking around. These were, there were rugs on the floor, uh, but but worn and uh, and about worn out. And somebody had had rigged a uh, extension cord from one side of the room to the other and had gone under the rug. And it was uh, worn at the point, you know, like at the point where the rug was worn. So basically, Dell was electrocuting himself. <laughs> Jesus. 
I love that story. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. I will also say that, well, that's, that's a great story. I also have to say, by the way, you know, like uh, now they've told a funny story about Dell. I will also mention that I think Dell is one of the, one of the lesser credited geniuses of comedy and his impact on comedy from uh, both his days at Second City and then at uh, I.O. Uh, has had a mm-hmm. tremendous influence on comedy in America, maybe internationally, not only with the people that he directly influenced, but the people that they have influenced and the people that those people have influenced. Dell is a seminal source in terms of, of comedy and improvisation. Absolutely. I mean, just yeah. the, the people that he had a hand in training, like, I mean, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Tina Fey, like Bill all Murray. the SCTV people, Bill Murray. Yeah. Bill Murray. Uh, Chris Farley, uh, uh, George went, I mean, the list goes on. Um, and yeah, it, it's just staggering when you look at all the people that he either trained directly or people that Dell trained who trained the next generation of people. I mean, that's, yeah. that's something yeah, else. They, they really went into it in the documentary too, when they had like, um, who else did they talk to? They talked like, you know, Tim Meadows and Adam mm-hmm. McKay, I believe, uh, Sudeikis, Jason Sudeikis, they talked to too. That yeah. Amy Poehler. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Amy Poehler. Like they all were like, yeah, it's all, it's all him. He, he, he birthed all this. It's pretty incredible. <laughs> So, um, and, yeah, um, no. and, and John, you, you are not only interviewed for the documentary, you're actually played in some scenes like the 1980s. You is played by an actor, uh, Josh Fadham, I'm assuming. Is that, am I pronouncing that correctly? I don't know, to be honest. Uh, I'm not sure. Did you, did you get to meet the actor playing you? No. In fact, uh, I was never oh, consulted okay. about those, uh, uh, about those at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, John, I've got to ask, what does it feel like having somebody play you? Um, okay, I'll be honest. I don't care for those scenes very much. Uh, it's yeah. a documentary. I thought it, they it, did you a bit of a disservice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, in one of the scenes, they uh, they have Dell, me, and Mike sitting together plotting. Mm-hmm. Mike was never in on the plotting sessions. You know, uh, right. or sending me out to get something to drink while the, while he and Dell talk, that never happened. You know, uh, and makes right. me a little bit le- like just, I'm just typing things. No, uh, no, Dell and I were full yeah partners, and in a certain percentage of the time, uh, if Dell wasn't there, I did the entire work myself. So uh, yeah, because I mean, I've I've gone through the issues of Wasteland. There are several stories, particularly in the later part of the run where you have a solo credit. It's not uh, Ostrander and Del Close. It's just John yeah. Ostrander. Yeah. So, and, uh, and in those scenes, uh, like they, they kind of portray you like, Oh, gee, gee, I'm just happy to be here. And I was like, uh, I doubt it was like that. No, <laughs> no, you know, it wasn't anything like that. Uh, Del and I had already been working together for some time. Like I said, on Munden's bar, it was that mm-hmm. collaboration that brought, uh, that make Mike think that we could do this uh, together as well. You know, uh, my job also was, 
Uh, Dell's contributions would range everywhere, everything from an idea, which I would then work out, to mm -hmm. um, basically almost full scripts, which I would format uh, uh, right. to be in the uh, comic book medium. Um, so Dell's contribution waxed and waned, but always, always interesting, you know. And mm -hmm. um, I just, I just didn't feel that something that fictional should be in a documentary. Yeah, I agree. They, they also had a scene uh, <laughs> that allegedly took place at DC Comics. And I, I visited DC Comics in the 80s. And, and Bobby, you, of course, worked at DC in the 80s. And <laughs> what they put up is just this basic generic uh, 1980s office. And I'm like, that looks nothing like how the DC offices look. Well, you know, I'm sure they were on a budget and, you know, sure. we were highly stylized offices. So I could understand the, the fakery there. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah. Uh, 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 the way they depicted Jeanette Kahn wasn't correct either. Yeah. She was yeah. Um, so. Yes. I mean, it was, <laughs> that for me was one of the funnier scenes in the movie just because I knew it was like, remarkably inaccurate yeah 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 uh, uh, so I, I i don't think they served themselves well on it but the rest of yeah. it i do like so it's not like i i hate the mm -hmm. whole thing there's some i think that was uh, a misstep yeah yeah I did like um, uh, James Ur Urbaniak as the young Dell, though, but I'm yeah. sure you have your own opinion on that. Yeah, no, actually, uh, 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 it, it was a reasonable interpretation of Dell, although Dell was nowhere near that age at that time. You know, uh, and Dell was mm -hmm. close to 50. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So, okay. It took a lot of liberties. So. Yeah. And I suppose that's going to be the case in, you know, just about any, any dramatization, certainly. And yeah. in, in a lot of documentaries as well. So, I mean, do you have any other uh, stories about putting together Wasteland back in the day? Uh, let's see. Um, I mean, th there was one story in particular that really struck me that starts out with Dell suggesting that they go dig up the grave in your backyard. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, that was actually based on uh, on real life. Um, we were stuck, mm -hmm. and so we. I finally suggested, well, let's do a wasteland story about being stuck. You know, and uh, mm -hmm. and Mike calling us, and at one point he did say, "Ostrandy, you've gone beyond, beyond deadline, and you're now in a funeral line." So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah I mean it's writing an anthology in particular I mean you don't have any continuing plot lines you don't have any continuing characters you're basically starting over from scratch three times an issue yeah so that's a lot yeah and uh, which means that it took a lot more work by me to uh, to get it done mm -hmm. to the point where um I couldn't continue. When we stopped at issue 18, as Mike has said, it's not because we had completely driven away our audience yet. Mike thought we we could uh, do another six issues, but I, I just couldn't keep on doing it. Oh, you were, you were just burned out at that point? Yeah. 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 
Because it, it yeah. seemed like, like I said, in the later issues, there were a lot more solo writing credits from you. So it seemed like yeah. a lot more was on your shoulders. Yeah. Although the very final yeah. issue, uh, Dell taught the Herald uh, a form of improv mm-hmm. in which uh, you take scenes and then by the end of it, you reincorporate elements of you know of all the scenes to bring it all together. And that's what we did for the uh, final issue. We we created a Herald out of out of wasteland, you know, doing bits and pieces and shtick from uh, from all previous seventeen issues as much as we could. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You did. You did have have a lot of callbacks in that last issue, and it was yeah. that was pretty interesting to see. And you're just tying together all these uh, <laughs> all these different elements. That was mm-hmm. that that was cool. Yeah. And it was it was interesting. Mike Gold, I think he wrote in the text piece. Uh, in the first issue, he's like, well, if we're doing our jobs properly, we'll be canceled after eight issues. Or that might have been something that you said, John. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was... Ten uh, issues beyond that. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was a, ba- that was a basic attitude. If we're, if we're really doing it right, you know, uh, we'll drop below um, uh, publishing uh, standards by, by then. Although I will say, um, in the very first issue... We had a story car called RAB, uh, which stood for retroactive abortion. And this couple that uh, are trying to be up and comers, you know, have had a baby, neither one of them then decides what they want. And what we do at the end of the story, and yes, I'm going to give it away, uh, the counselor goes, okay, and takes the baby and tosses it out the window of the skyscraper. So uh, Jeanette Kahn read that and was grossed out and but she didn't stop us you know like she just never read any of our mm-hmm. stuff and one of the things mike likes a, a, a lot about the rb story is that according to who you talk to it's either pro-abortion or anti-abortion so <laughs> uh, <laughs> we could offend both sides Oh, equal, equality, well, that's an accomplishment. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think my uh, my favorite did you, did you is, ever... uh, is dissecting Mr. Fleming, in which uh, a young uh, boy. I that's one of the ones I read as well. Ty Templeton drew that. Ty Templeton drew it uh, wonderfully, and uh, it starts yeah. off with uh, this father who's dissected the biology teacher because he made his son dissect a frog in class so so to show his love for his son he's dissected mr fleming and it actually becomes a very warm tale of how, of how the father and son come together yes yeah and it's because it's drawn by ty templeton who has a very inviting sort of like half cartoony style mm-hmm. you're not horrified by it, it it's more absurd than gory yeah yeah and it's it's charming in a dark sort of way. Yeah, exactly. Which itself is disturbing. You know, I mean, you yes. get to the end of it, the, the two have gotten away with it, and mm-hmm. you're not sure if you approve of that. Yeah, it's, it is a different type of horror story because it was, I mean, the EC... Uh, formula for horror stories back in the 1950s was usually like you know twist endings or shocks or yeah. bits of gore and you were doing something more psychological a lot of the time yeah 
Yeah, by no. by uh, uh, design. You know, we wanted to do more mm -hmm. psychological horror. Uh, some, something else I, I've always loved about your comics career is you actually became a DC Comics character uh, in the early 1980s before you were writing for DC. Yeah. You were written in as a character in The Daring New Adventures of Supergirl, written by Paul Coverberg, mm -hmm. and you were Supergirl's neighbor. Right. That's because Paul was living across the street from me at that point, and mm -hmm. he needed a character, sort of feckless uh, actor type in Chicago theater. Uh, and so he decided, well, I'm going to name him after John. So Johnny Ostrander. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's, and, and you were, I, I think a love interest for Supergirl or a potential love interest for her. So that's not too bad of a deal, right? Yeah. Not too bad. Although nice. you know, it didn't really, uh, he was a little too feckless for Supergirl, I think. <laughs> oh. But yeah, I mean, you're you're still a character in the DC universe. I'm I'm kind of amazed that you you haven't been brought back or killed off by another writer. Yeah, Bob, I think we should have killed me off in Suicide Squad. Well, I was afraid you'd get back at me because you you had Joe Brzezowski draw me into an issue of Firestorm, and I, I did not want to die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, one point where I did get into a little bit of trouble in Suicide Squad was, uh, I think it was Grant Morrison and had written himself into the mm -hmm. end of, uh, of Animal Man. So I said, yeah, well, okay, right. okay, he's a member of the DCU, so I can kill him off. Uh, we didn't call him Grant Morrison. We, we called him the writer. And the character right. had, had a, 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 type, a, a small computer attached to him so he could type out what was going to happen next. And he died when he got uh, writer's block. Uh, <laughs> wow. I, I'm I amazed that uh, Grant Morrison never brought the John Ostrander comic character back in an issue that he was doing for DC to kill you off in retaliation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I don't think he was too amused overall. And yes, it was a little, <laughs> it was a little bit petty on my part. So I should not. I, I, I will say I, I should not have done it. You know, it was a good gag, but no. No, I should it is not. a very funny scene. It is a very funny yeah. scene. Um, and, uh, you know, something else that's notable, like you and uh, Kim Yale, who joined you on writing uh, Suicide Squad, you two basically brought Barbara Gordon back as a viable character after yeah. she was uh, eliminated as Batgirl. Can, can you talk a little about how that came about? Yeah. Um... That happened in uh, in the Killing Joke, and I have mm -hmm. the vastest respect for for Alan Moore and Brian Bolland. Uh, you couldn't ask for more consummate uh, prose in it, but in it, they uh, Barbara is frankly not treated very well. She uh, she's shot with a large caliber gun at close range. And Kim and I both said, well, she should be dead. Well, no, she isn't dead. Uh, now she's crippled. And we said, well, mm -hmm. we asked the bad office if they could give her to us to use in Suicide Squad. And they said, yeah, sure. We got no plans for her. 
So we went, well, okay. Yeah, I mean, go ahead. For certain perspective here, Alan Moore wrote that script for Brian Bolland around 1984 for Len mm-hmm. Wein, the editor. Right. Yeah. And Len, you know, Len is quoted as saying, you know, sure, cripple the bitch or something to that effect. Um, right. At no point was anyone thinking this prestige format one shot was going to be considered part of the continuity. But by the time Brian was done drawing it in 1988, and Denny was the editor. Somehow they decided it would be the continuity. So they commissioned the Batgirl special by Barbara Kiesel and Barry Kitson so that she had a fond farewell. And knowing this was in the background, this is where Batgirl was having her crisis of faith in the crisis on infinite earths. So there was a lot of setup being done very organically, but not with a lot of direction Mm -hmm. until finally the book came out. It was a real thing. And John and Kim said, we want her. Yeah, right. yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Because we felt Barbara deserved a little bit more than that. So, uh, uh, what we decided was, given the angle that she was shot at with that with that powerful gun, uh, if she wasn't dead, she was crippled. You know, uh, very definitely. You know, like, uh, um, and we didn't want her get, get magically getting well. We wanted that to be a consequence of what had happened, you know, deal with the consequence. Mm-hmm. So we were going to keep her in a wheelchair and, and we looked into her background, into her continuity and Barbara was all over the place, you know, in terms of what she had done. But at one point she was very versed in computers. So we said, well, look, let's make her the information broker, you know, and if we do this right. Lots of writers at DC are going to want to use her because she solves a problem. How does a given character learn mm-hmm. something that they have to learn? Well, either either you have to show it in the plot or they call Barbara. You know, like, and so we created this right. character and we called her Oracle. And then, then we eased her into the storyline. We made her a mystery for a while. Um, that Oracle was this person who even Amanda Waller didn't know uh, who she was. So, uh, and then finally we revealed that it was Barbara Gordon. The fun thing there was, you know, we started with her in Suicide Squad 23. And by the time we revealed it in number 38, we're talking 15 months later. These days, nobody has that kind of patience. No. And, uh I don't remember the circumstances, but John was particularly busy at one point, and I was asked to step in and script over his plot for Suicide Squad 38, which was predominantly a Bronze Tiger origin, but we did have the reveal that it was Barbara uh, in that issue. So it was kind of an interesting time. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yes, I was forgetting that you wrote one issue, Bob. Yeah, so it... uh... Yeah, periodically when John... John was in, you know, in demand. So every now and then he needed help. Uh, I did the same for him on a firestorm issue during uh, the invasion crossovers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, at one point I was writing four books a month and I think there's one month when I actually did six. Uh, that was insane. Uh, and it, <laughs> I couldn't do that today. That's for sure. But um, I think the only running story thing that we did that was, as long or longer, and Bob, this is one of my favorite routines that we did. Uh, 
Uh-huh. Was you know what I'm talking about. The pie in the face. Uh-huh. You know. <laughs> and, and we had that plan from the start. Amanda Waller got the first one. And then Captain Boomerang got the second one. But we revealed at the end right. that Boomerang was actually the mad pie thrower. And he had thrown a boomerang pie. So he would get hit by it. Uh, and everyone, and no one would think he was the actual pie thrower. And we milked that. Just ungodly. <laughs> you did. <laughs> the the pie the pie thrower subplot went on for quite a while. I mean, you would think with a book like Suicide Squad, it's it's very grim and and fatalistic, and it and it was that at times. But you also had this weird undercurrent of humor running through it as well, which I think is part of what made James Gunn such a wonderful choice to direct the uh, the sequel yeah. to the movie. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, to me, one of the things about the book was it was a dark humor yeah and we had very twisted characters you know when we brought in punch and julie for example they were just wacky this loving couple that were just off the walls yeah 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 i love one of my favorite moments with them well they're all on a plane going off to some sort of mission and punch and julie are falling uh fooling around and they disappear down below the seats and then you hear Punch say, now I'm going to make you eat this salami. And she goes, ooh. <laughs> so, and you can make of that whatever you want. <laughs> hey, now. Approved by the Comics Code Authority. <laughs> no, we're beyond uh, authority. Yeah, I, yeah. If I could get yeah. it past the editor, that's all I ask. <laughs> Bob, did he try to get away with a lot? Yeah. You know, we we tried a lot. We got away with almost everything. I can't even remember anything we may have jettisoned. Mm -hmm. Well, one of my things was uh, I decided Boomerang, since he was Australian, should talk Australian. So I got several books on on the lingo. And I would keep on throwing in dirty words or something like that that you would only know if you were Australian. Uh-huh. A friend of mine, oh, though, nice. from Australia, Dave DeVries, was over visiting me, and um, and he told me that, uh, oh, yeah, we love to read it out loud, mate, because, uh, and, and then we laugh, you know, because you know, no one in Australia talks like that. And I said, but I got it from <laughs> And he says, yeah, but nobody actually talks that way. <laughs> Yeah, so that's when I started talking about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you did have an issue where uh, Boomerang goes to Australia and he's expected to be greeted as a conquering hero because he helps fight off an alien invasion. And yeah. all the real Australians are like, no, no, we hate this guy. We're throwing him over the edge of this boat. Well, actually, David <laughs> DeRees co-wrote that with me uh, at that point. Uh, oh, no, lovely. Yeah, so... Uh, so if there's any problems with the language in that one, blame it on Dave. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that that was really a fun thing about Suicide Squad as a reader, because I was like a, a teenager reading it at the time that these were coming out in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, is you really developed a lot of these, which a lot of these villains were basically like gimmick characters, like Captain Boomerang, he had all these trick mm. boomerangs. Mm-hmm. And Deadshot had a really cool character, but he wasn't terribly developed. And you gave Deadshot a uh, 
an actual death wish, uh, which was mm-hmm. a really unusual thing to, to read in the comics at the time. And well, I never thought he, he actually like, had really a death wish. wish. I think he didn't care. Mm-hmm. He didn't care if he lived. I, or okay. Died. Yeah, well, you would know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I actually got the idea for that from an interview that I saw. They were interviewing mm-hmm. an actual hitman uh, uh, in prison and uh, uh, had the coldest eyes of anyone I've ever seen, you know, like, uh, in real life or in or film and TV. And, uh, and his whole basic attitude was, I don't care if I die, so why should I care if you die? And I took that for, uh, mm. for that Wow. Wow. Shit. That's that's really something else. That chills just hearing it. Yeah. But, yeah. And then and then we do <laughs> talk about getting dark. Uh, oh, the miniseries? <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the miniseries. Thank you. Yeah, one of my the, favorite projects. Oh God. That one just came out so well. I mean, uh, and what was amazing is that the readers really didn't think we were going to go where we went, although we kept on time. No, no, we're headed here. We're headed over here. Yeah. And uh, 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 and also Luke did, I think, some of the best work of his career because he also inked himself. Luke McDonald. Yeah, yes. yeah, Luke McDonald. And when he inked that, uh, you really saw what Luke was all about in terms of his art. Yeah, yeah, it it was very cool to see uh, Luke inking himself because it it did give his art a whole different look. Not that uh, Carl Kiesel and the other people, yeah, uh, inking like Bob Lewis didn't do a great job, but yeah, but uh, uh, Luke I, rose to the occasion. He so loved the project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah. he came in and he had the uh, one, two, three, four design idea for the cover. Yeah. Mm. And also at the end of, of issue three, um, Deadshot has been going to, uh, his son has been kidnapped and he's going to kill everyone who did it and save his son, which doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. The kid's killed, much to the reader's, what? Yeah. What? You know, like, and the last, and he finds out that, he, and Lawton finds out that his own mother is behind it all. And so on the last page, He's ripped off his um, uh, his mask, and it's a full page close up shot, and he's screaming, "Ma, I'm coming home, Ma!" And I just thought uh-huh. that was one of the most effective pages uh, I uh, that I've ever been connected with. You know, and Luke just—I mean, that that was a wonderful it. page. Yeah, because I mean that that whole story. If you've been reading genre fiction for any length of time, you're expecting the story to zig. You guys zagged hard in the other direction, yeah. and uh, and uh, you know probably my favorite Suicide Squad story is when Deadshot returns to the book right after that mini. Uh, yeah, I, and you I have the whole thing with Senator Cray, who also got got a shout out in the last movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at, w- at one point in the movie, Amanda Waller is like practicing her putting and she says oh i've got a golf date with senator cray and i was in the love theater that I love oh, that senator yeah. Cray. <laughs> yeah. yeah and what i loved I, about 
about the issue that you're referring to is that uh, Rick Flagg yes. has gone around the bend, and he thinks that Crave's going yes. to uh, blow the whistle and destroy the uh, the squad, and that would mess up everything that he sacrificed in his life to do. And so he's going off to try to kill him. Amanda finds out and sends the squad out to stop uh, Flag, as, as she says, by any means necessary. Lawton is the one mm-hmm. who catches up with Flag at the Lincoln Memorial. And it turns out that Deadshot kills Cray. You know, and when Amanda later on calls him on it, and she says, I didn't mean for you to shoot him. And he said, well, you didn't say so. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That that was the dead shot I wanted to see on on the movie screen. And I, I unfortunately didn't get it in the, in the first one. I thought they went for something a little more, a lot more cliched. So, but, you know, we well, always that. have comics versions, which is, which is, so. Yeah, that uh, I do feel sorry for David Ayers, uh, the director, on it because mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, or Deadpool had come out, and powers that be decided mm. to redo the squad so it would appeal more to that, and uh, they got right. it as far as I can tell. I mean, I haven't seen what I've only heard rumors about what Ayers was planning, but uh, most of the problems that you see with the first squad movie is um, I blame on higher-ups. Uh, I know Ayers would love to do uh, his own version of it the way that they did it with Justice League. And, uh, right. and I kind of wish that they would. You know, I'd like to see... There's been a lot of talk about it. I'd love to see it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have seen them uh, tweeting out the, the hashtag release the air cut. And uh, yeah, I, I would like to see the film get to be what he wanted it to be because I mean the, the theatrical cut, it did have problems. I mean, it introduced a lot of the characters twice and you're watching and you're just like, okay, what's going on here? Um, yeah. Also, is, why yeah, is it, it I mean, when Amanda comes out at the end, you know, after, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the bad guys vanquished and Deadshot says to her, why are you not dead? And I'm going, yeah, why aren't you not dead? You sh- <laughs> uh, she should have been dead at that <laughs> You know, and that was the intimation, but no. Uh, and so all they could do is sort of go, yeah, we know. <laughs> yeah. I do have a story yeah, also I mean, about, about uh, my name being on the building. Um, oh, go for it. Yeah. Because uh, um, I knew that they were going to do something. They, they'd asked for that. They wanted a shot of me. They were going to name a building after me. I went, oh, cool. You know, so I figured there was going to be this plaque on the wall as they went in somewhere. So uh, on opening night, I'm sitting next to Gold, and uh, um, I'm at the premiere, and I'm watching very carefully, studying, you know, is it over there? It could be over there. And then Mike nudges me and goes, did you see it? Did you see it? I said, see what? I had entirely missed my name in, in the big light <laughs> outside of the building because I was looking for the small one. Oh boy, <laughs> that's hilarious because it's 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 hard to miss in the movie. I, I remember oh, yeah, I, saw I know it on my first it's viewing, when you're but... not looking for it, you know. So. 
<laughs> Your modesty was tripping you up, John. Not my modesty, my stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> Which it often does. It often does. I'll I'll own up to it. Well, hey, I Pop, mean, this, what do you think is the stupidest thing that I ever did on the on on the squad book during your tenure? The stupidest thing? Yeah. Aside from missing a deadline here and there. Oh, wow. Okay, so I, I handed the book over to Dan R. Asplew with number 31. We were gearing up to go to Apocalypse. Yeah. So the stupidest thing you did? Oh, uh, wow. I can't think. Of, we were really firing on all cylinders during the, the yes, first yeah. two and a half years. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I you know, it was a testament to you to be so open to ideas, mostly from Carl Kiesel, but from mm-hmm. any of us who had an idea. Yeah. Uh, so we got some really good storylines out of it, like Lashina. We haven't even talked yeah. about working her in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I yeah, can't well, think of anything stupid. I'm sorry. Okay. okay. I, 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 I was talking with Carl recently, and uh, Carl likes the analogy that I made to that um, I treated the creative group as a band. You know, like, uh, we all have our part, you know, like our instruments to play. But I wanted to hear from everybody on it in terms of the songs we were singing, you know, putting stuff together. And uh, uh, I reserve the right to be, you know, uh, the lead on it. But uh, 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 I would always listen to any ideas. And <laughs> Carl used to send me these long letters that I called Kiesel Epistles. And, uh, and some ideas I took and some I didn't. And I understand he was like a big booster for bringing in uh, Lashina, who was one of the female Furies. You brought her into the book as the Duchess, sort of like a female yeah. Rambo type. Yeah. That was another long storyline that we just teased out for over a year, two years yeah. actually, and just had a ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, 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 like you said, they people don't seem to have the patience for that anymore. It's really too bad because if you do stuff like that, you know, it's a payoff for the regular loyal reader, someone who stays with you. If you do it off enough, they go, okay, they may have something else planned here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's probably different today because so many writers these days, they, they, they're writing more for the, the trade paperback collection. So they're writing in like six to eight issue chunks and they're not really playing the long game the way yeah. you did uh, back in the day when, when a trade paperback collection wasn't a foregone conclusion. Yeah. I, although you can do that. You know, I mean, I had uh, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of our storylines. You know, we would do a story and, and, uh, and conclude that plot. But yeah, then we would do intricate uh, interior subplotting. And it, it mm-hmm. you can do it. You can do it. It's not a problem. I, I will say yeah. um, there was one point where, um, I, because we would read a lot of newspapers and try to identify what flashpoints were coming in the world and try to set a story there. And I had a friend who called me up at one point and um, she said, uh, John, where's the squad going to be next summer? I said, why? And she says, because I'm planning <laughs> my vacation now and I don't want to go where they're going. 
<laughs> yeah, you you actually, I think you you've said that when you were conceiving the book, you were like, "Oh, this is this is pretty edgy stuff." We've got the federal government releasing yeah. super criminals to go on suicide missions, and then what story hit the papers shortly after that? Uh, uh, it was uh, uh, um, Contra, Iran Contra, Iran Contra, yeah. And that made us look like so. You said, like, yeah, yeah. So reality outpaced you. I know it has Uh, a nasty habit of doing that. But I remember we did one story set in the Middle East, along with um, the Israeli band of superheroes that we created, called the Hayoth. And uh, and right around the time that it came out. Things flared in the Middle East, and, and uh, uh, right around the uh, uh, Temple of the Mount, uh, and we had that as part of our plot. So at that point, yeah, it was it was a little, a little. Actually, I've told other people too mm. is that uh, the very first issue, the opening pages mm-hmm. of it, has a terrorist attack on an airport. Uh, when supposedly the president of the United States is landing, I don't think Bob that we could get away right. with that. No. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it, it. Reads differently today. Um, yeah, I, I yeah. recently got there. There are eight trade paperbacks from DC reprinting the entire run of the book. Yeah. Unfortunately, omitting the Deadshot miniseries, but uh, yeah. but they're they're well worth picking up. Well, Deadshot uh, miniseries was collected with the other Deadshot miniseries that was that Christos Gage who wrote it. Yeah. So they're combined oh, okay. in one volume. Gotcha. All right. All right. So, so there you go. So, so, so all the, your squad stuff is is available to pick up. And uh, and you've also returned to the squad a couple of times. I know you did yeah. a mini series uh, about 10 years back. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's and, a, uh, we killed off Flag at one point and then. This was a mistake. I brought him back. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I now regard that as a, not a good idea. I should have left him dead. Because, um, Bob, we talked ah. about it at the time. If we killed off Flag, who was like supposed to be the main hero, the heroic figure, uh, that would really tell the readers, okay, anybody can go. If we were going to kill Absolutely. off Flag, that would anybody be the idea. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, that was, <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that was special. a shocking story. Then we also did a special set in um, Belgium at the World Court as um, the squad tries to liberate a um, an, an American politician official who's up there for war crimes. And uh, so they bring him home. And that also had a nice shocking ending. Yeah, so I mean, if you want some uh, some great uh, comic stories, um, pick up the Suicide Squad paperbacks. And I don't believe uh, Wasteland has been uh, reprinted in a collection, but you can still find those individual issues on the the back issue market, I believe. Yeah, and some of, and and some of them were on the digital site as well. Not all. Oh yes. Okay. So you. Yeah, you can go to uh, Comicsology or your the digital comic service of your choice and and find a few to to download. 
Well, guys, this is this has been great. This has been so much fun walking down memory lane with you and hearing all your stories. So thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you. Yeah, this is, this has been incredible. Well, good. It's been a real pleasure. I mean, you know, hearing John tell the stories, you know, just reminds me of. Uh, whenever we could, we'd get everyone together for lunch in New York and yeah. we would you know, just brainstorm and, and have a wonderful time. Yeah. And that to yeah. me is the best part of being a comic book editor is just sitting around with the writers and the artists and seeing what we could come up with, getting mm-hmm. each other excited. Yeah. 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 Luke was always great because Luke is one of the most silent people that you'll ever meet. But uh, as we would tell a, a storyline, yeah, and he was there. Partic- I remember he did this when, when we were telling him what the Deadshot miniseries was going to be, and his eyes just got real big. You know, you could tell he was excited, <laughs> but you know, couldn't get him to say. Calvin Coolidge would would was verbose by comparison. <laughs> well, I mean, that's great. I mean, I could I could talk to you guys for another couple hours, but I know that. Uh, that uh, we have to wrap it up. So uh, thank you again so much for doing this. Is there anything uh, you guys have going on that uh, you want to plug that you want to make sure that our listeners check out? Um, I've John, done, what are you up to? I've done a couple of uh, independent projects uh, with longtime mm-hmm. uh, uh, collaborators. Uh, one with Tom Mandrake, we did uh, Cross Hallowed Ground, which is, combination of vampires and uh, the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, always fun. And, cool. then, and then Jan Dersma and I we did so much Star Wars together. We have our own space opera character called Hexer Dusk. And uh, the first one of those is out and we're, ta- we're working on a second one. Those, I think, are available from Indiegogo, I think. Uh, uh, also, mm-hmm. you might be able to still order through uh uh what's the site uh the uh, uh well never mind i can it's gone straight out of my head okay if if you uh if you think of it you can email me and we'll we'll put it in the uh in the show notes okay. um okay and by the way speaking of of John Ostrander in Star Wars, a character that John and uh, Jan created ended up in the Star Wars uh, prequels. Yeah. So yeah, that's it was pretty cool. Good. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. pretty amazing to watch her, you know, and, uh, and then they yeah. kill her. <laughs> they shot oh, her down and then they shot her while she was lying on the ground. <laughs> but I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, because John, you've never had a, a character you created killed off before. <laughs> no, no, and I wouldn't do that to another author ever. No, no, never, never, ever, ever, never. never. Uh, Bob, what about you? Do you have any uh, projects uh, coming up you want us to know about? You know, I've I've got a whole bunch of stuff I wrote in the last eighteen months that I think is all going to see print in twenty twenty two. So uh, all I can do is recommend people check out my blog at bobgreenberger.com and I'll keep you posted when any of it's coming out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Bob's blog is uh, good reading. I particularly recommend his uh, his year at Marvel series where he's tracking through his year at Marvel at a particularly pivotal year at Marvel Comics uh, month by month. And oh my God, it's, yeah, it's terrible reading. Yeah, to go. 
Yeah, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> it's like a horror movie <laughs> when you know what's coming. <laughs> but uh, guys, thank you so much for doing this. This this has been an absolute joy. Okay, thanks, thanks for having us. Um, is there is there anywhere, uh, 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 John? Is there anywhere online that uh, people can check you out? Uh, uh, Twitter or your website? Facebook. Facebook. I'm on okay. Facebook most often. I, uh, okay. If you like bad puns, by all means, drop by. Okay. And uh, you can check out Bob at bobgreenberger.com. And uh, you can check out uh, my uh, Twitter account at Trumbull Comic. That's T-R-U-M-B-U-L-L and the word comic. And you can pay, uh, check out the show's page at SNL Nerds Show. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter and, and Instagram at Darren Credible. That's D-A-R-I-N Credible. Okay. And uh, thank you for joining us for this uh, special bonus episode. We're going to be back uh, on Monday uh, covering the Billie Eilish episode from this weekend. So until then, nerds out! out. This has been a non-productive media presentation. Executive producer, Frank Hablaoui. This program and many others like it on the Non-Productive Network is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Please share it, but ask before trying to change it or sell it. For more information, visit non-productive.com.